Please. Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, and whether you're watching to the video version on FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast version on iTunes, Spotify, or from other leading providers, I thank you, as always, for your continued interest and support in the show which is also brought to you by Everything is on the One, the first guide of funk. Be sure you get your copy at Amazon if you don't have one already. Also available at funkinstuff.net, as well as the funkinstuff.net store, which has all kinds of great gear, funky stuff, gear, truth and rhythm stuff, and funky things to play with. I also want to give a shout out to the Funk Hall of Fame and Exhibition Center in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm proud to be an official funk ambassador. Go to the um, Funk Center, Org to learn more and keep the funk alive. For today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Leroy Johnson, who's the only surviving full brother of the late king of punk funk himself, Rick James. Johnson had a front row seat not only for Slick Rick's childhood and musical development, but also for his ascension to funk, soul, and pop crossover superstardom. And as James scored his biggest triumph with 1981's Platinum Selling Street Songs album, Johnson joined in to manage his brother's business affairs throughout the decade. That comprised acting as tour manager and overseeing Mary Jane Productions, and its stable of acts including the Mary Jane Girls, Process and the Do-Rags, the Stone City Band, and Val Young. While James overshadowed his brother in terms of fame, both were blessed with special talents. Johnson holds a law degree as an accomplished classical guitarist and visual artist. In 2019, Johnson received hometown honors by being inducted into the Buffalo Music Hall of Fame. Leroy, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you? Good, I'm good. Thank you for the kind introduction. That was, uh, you did your homework. That was uh, uh, pretty on point, pretty much. But I, I was also Rick's manager, not just the road manager. Excellent. Okay. Well, we'll get into some of that nitty gritty. Really looking forward to it. Okay. Been very much looking forward to hearing your great stories. Okay. Let's let's do it. Yeah. Let's as do we it. say. <laughs> and you're coming to us from uh, Buffalo today. Is that right? Yes, I'm in Buffalo, New York, in my office. Is the winter being kind to you? This has been a. It hasn't been much of a winter here in Buffalo. We haven't had much snow. I don't think we've had 10 inches yet. Uh, and today it was 50, and, and uh, I think the day before yesterday it was 60. Uh, tomorrow will be 40, and then the next day it'll be Buffalo again, which will probably be 
uh, high of 20, 25, something like that. Wow. People Hopefully must, no slow. People must be running around without shirts and shorts and stuff and going crazy with such a warm winter. Only the fools. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back, you know, way back. Testo's memory banks, for starters. You know, growing up in uh, obviously musical and artistic household, you know, how and why were you and Rick drawn to your particular interests and develop those strengths? Well, um, Rick was the music man. I, you know, I, I tagged along. Uh, uh, we did um, the cadets and we did the um, African culture uh, uh, route um, where we uh, learned a lot about uh, congas, percussion, and all that sort of thing. And the uh, uh, Rick was more in the forefront on, on both of those levels. He was uh, a lead drummer, played the snare drums with the cadets, and he also played um, um, the congas and the, um, the bongos with the African Culture Center. So, I mean, that, that was a foundation uh, mostly for Rick because basically I was playing the bass drum uh, and uh, uh, I wasn't as, as good uh, with the Congo or, or bongos with the African Culture Center. But Rick was naturally talented. So, you know, he did it. I did it as a follow along the older brother. And you guys were only, what, a year apart about, right? 11 months. Who who's older? I was. Rick is older. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, being being the baby brother. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes. I said I followed along. That was the key. So that's uh, the, the younger brother follows along. So at, at what point did it become sort of apparent that uh, Rick was probably going to be pursuing a life in music? and you were going in your direction? Well, you, you really didn't know that uh, he was, uh, his whole world was music. But uh, we, we, I don't think we were thinking that that, uh, uh, that was going to be our entire world. I just know the Rick's focus was always singing, uh, taking part in um, uh, uh, musical events and, and uh, say for instance if a um, talent show would come up uh, he'd jump into that he was always writing songs or or, or uh, humming things that that sort of thing I, I mean you know as a brother you're, you're looking at him okay I mean that's musical maybe you know because Rick at um, uh, early on Rick uh, uh, instead of singing a lot of lead parts he used to sing a lot of background parts and it it, 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 um, um, it was kind of strange that he was singing more background than he was lead, but he was the only singer, you know. So it, uh, that um, that was a little bit strange to me. Uh, um, so when Rick uh, went forward, like I, I remember him writing uh, uh, Melinda for Bobby Taylor in the Vancouver's, and um, I thought that a lot of it was. Uh, was kind of background vocals that he had written, and um, basically it turned into lead vocals. But uh, uh, Rick learned a lot uh, from doing that, and also I think he, um, early on, uh, the strongest part of his musical career was probably with the African Culture Center with uh, 
uh, Malcolm and I, uh, um, and uh, learning uh, African chants and um, learning how to play different percussive instruments, uh, uh, bells, chimes, uh, sticks, all different kinds of things. So, uh, you know, I think that that probably early on was uh, his strongest influence. How old would you say that was around? I would say it was from from 10 to um, 14, 15, just about the time he left home. I'm 10 years old. And what was he, what was he like as uh, otherwise? Was he um, funny? Uh, was he um, mischievous? Was he, you know, very straight he was totally, ahead? To totally, no, no, totally mischievous, mischievous, as we would say up north. Um, he was involved in um, a lot of things that kids his age just weren't involved in. He was, um, he liked to do things, um, steal a car here and there, um, uh, maybe break into some place, that kind of thing, or um, like to play with the girls. I mean, at a very, very young age, um, he, he was just way ahead of himself. Uh, just, I mean, he he would do he'd just do things that most most kids just wouldn't do, uh, and uh, I would follow along <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, get in trouble for it. I mean, um, but Rick was very mischievous, so he he's um, was very independent and very creative about what it, what he did. You know, he was ahead of everybody our age in all the things that he did. He liked to play sports. He, uh, he, was, he was a really good athlete, played good football, good basketball. Uh, we used to play a lot of hockey, played good hockey, Rick James the ice skater. Um, but, I mean, anything he wanted to do, he could do. So he would do it, and uh, he'd be pretty good at it. Who were some of his big early musical influences that inspired him, do you think? Well, uh, given that uh, in our early days we um, we had like two or three channels, we didn't have um, we had a uh, sunrise or sunset R and B station, and we listened to a lot of rock. So I mean, on, on television, I know we used to watch a lot of Ricky Nelson. Uh, uh, we watched a lot of Elvis. We watched a lot of the the um, uh, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers and. Uh, um, the flamingos, but uh, um, we also had uh, the influence of jazz at home. But uh, for the most part, when we were listening, we were listening to what was on the radio, and and, and basically we were listening to rock and roll. Mm -hmm. and Only so a little later, later when we uh, uh, when we moved out to uh, this different district, which was Cold Spring, did we start um, listening to more R and B? And that R and B, the reason was because I think the station starts staying on a little later. I think uh, when we were growing up, it was sunset, sunrise to sunset, and sunset in Buffalo at 4.30. So we didn't get a whole lot of uh, R&B, but we got quality R&B. Um, are there any artists in particular that you could point to that um, sort of helped shape his early direction, you think? Well, of course, the, the whole Motown thing, uh, you know, Motown was was uh, was early, but they still had the, 
the 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 acts that you listen to, Smokey Robinson and and uh, the Marvelettes and uh, uh, all those older groups that they had, um, Junior Walker and the All Stars. Uh, I mean, we listen to a lot of it, but also we listen to a lot of jazz. We listen to a lot of Coltrane and Miles Davis and um, um, Billy Eckstein, uh, Dakota Staten, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. So, I mean, we got a taste of a lot of different uh, different types of music. And when did it seem like he started, you know, expanding his musical um, reach, you know, in terms of maybe playing some bass or trying some other instruments and that kind of thing. I think it all started at the tail end of our experience with uh, uh, with the African Culture Center because uh, Malcolm did a Malcolm kind of featured Rick a lot and took him out, took him to Chicago to do these chants and that sort of thing. And um, after he came back, he seemed to be more um, more focused. On music, and then you know he he uh, he wrote as as I said earlier, he wrote the song Melinda, which is actually Dorinda at first, and he pitched Motown with it, and Motown uh, Motown took it and put it on Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's. So uh, I think he uh, at that point knew that. Uh, that he was a step ahead of a lot of other people. Because when you, when when your dream is to go to Motown, when you go to Motown, the first thing that that you've done, they accept. Uh, then it, you know it gives you a lot of um, confidence uh, in your musical abilities. Even though I don't think that that particular time that Rick was um, groomed yet. Diamond in the Rough, right? Uh, as he was young, he always played pots and pans and glasses and lined them up on the table and, and uh, played them with spoons and that. And my mother would always say, you know, put those put those things away, you know. <laughs> and he's banging on. So why is he banging on all of these pots and pans? That kind of thing. So that was uh, that's kind of the early part. And then you move into that period where um, we went from there to the the cadets. And uh, um, Rick got very good at playing the the snare and tenor drums uh, in the cadet cadets, and he was um, kind of one of the lead drummers. Went on from there to um, to um, uh, the African Culture Center, where played percussive instruments and um, even and, and learned a little bit about harmonica, but played the uh, the bongos and the congos and and the, uh, the various chimes and that that. Um, uh, that they had there, and he also learned how to chant there because they they did a lot of chanting and a lot of singing. Um, but something I, I missed out on was totally um, forgot about what which was uh, we were both choir boys uh, in the Catholic Church, so uh, you know we learned a lot about singing singing parts then. So you can add that with the rest of it, and then uh, uh, when he went off to um, um, well, I'll, I'll just take a step back and go to when he uh, he went into this audition and uh, kind of forced our way into an audition that had already had uh, it already started, already had people, and Rick convinced them that he had already applied and that, and so they let him sing. And he actually fit, finished second to 
one of the major groups in Buffalo, you know, which was surprising because, I, that, uh, as I said earlier, uh, it sounded like he was singing more background than he was uh, lead. And um, he actually sang by himself, but he finished second. That was really uh, inspirational. So uh, after that, he, uh, he started writing a little bit and maybe singing with a couple groups, but mostly corner singing, that sort of thing. Uh, which was big in, in, in you know, the 50s, early 60s. The doo-wop uh, thing, yeah. That doo-wop thing, yeah. So then from there, he went off to uh, Detroit, uh, Detroit to uh, get a song, uh, see if he can get a song uh, um, accepted, which he did. He got it accepted with Motown. And from there, after that, he joined the service. And uh, uh, then he ran off to Canada. I think had been there. that was a heavy musical experience for him there because he learned a lot about other instruments, uh, guitar, bass, keyboards, and, 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 and Rick could pick up things so fast that uh, uh, it was amazing that he could pick up any instrument and, and learn how to play it in no time. You know, um, So he picked up a little bit of this, that, and the other. So before you know it, he had the, all the pieces there. Um, and, uh, you know, from there he had a number of groups and they recorded, all of them recorded different albums and um, uh, Salt and Pepper, The Great White Cane, Minor Birds, there might have been a few others um, up in Canada while he was in Canada and he ran back and forth to Los Angeles all while he was AWOL, no doubt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> were, you, were you in close contact with him through the service oh. when he went to Canada? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'd go up to Canada a lot um, and see them. Matter of fact, I was in Canisius at the time, and a lot of guys from Canisius always remind me, and I forgot about it. That each, a lot of them, mostly basketball players, uh, uh, we used to race up to, to Toronto, see if we can get up there. We weren't just going up to see to see Rick, but you know, I mean, we always ended up seeing Rick, and uh, you know, I would tell them Rick is going to be a star, and. and Look at me all funny after, you know, here's the guy, you know, we're we're all black and Rick is in an all white group and wearing clothes that they thought was all funny. Although we were wearing platform shoes and that kind of crazy stuff back then and bell bottoms. Um, uh, but a lot of the guys, they still remind me of that. Oh, man, we, I remember we went up to Toronto. You said your brother was going to be such and such. I thought it was crazy, you know. And I I don't even remember which ones, except for a couple of them that was there. But it seemed to be a whole lot of guys. Uh, we went up there a lot. So, uh, I, I, you know, I, I was with Rick when he went to Toronto. Uh, I would go up to see him on the weekends. Uh, he would sneak down. Uh, I was with Rick when he went out to Los Angeles. And he did some work with the Troubadour at the Troubadour and some of those uh uh, Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevard uh, clubs. So, I mean, all along through the whole process, basically, I was there. Well, and of course, the Minor Birds famously had Neil Young as a member. Yes, Neil, Bruce Palmer, Stan Endersby, and um, you know a number of them. Uh, I used to go up and see them. They, they stayed. Um, in a section where it was a lot of hippies, a lot of um, draft dodgers, but now it's probably the finest area in Toronto. Uh, it's called Yorkville. And I remember Rick lived on in Hazleton. And um, where he lived now is Hazleton Lanes, one of the finest uh, 
most expensive uh, uh, buildings in uh, in Toronto. Wow. So I guess being there expanded not only musically with instruments, but his palette in terms of styles of music, right? I mean, Yes, his styles and performance, because I remember going to um, uh, one of the clubs to see him perform. Uh, went to a number of them, but uh, I was surprised that, uh, you know, the way that uh, um, the way he performed and how he had learned to handle the mic um, and the kind of things that he was doing on stage. You know, he, um, uh, I mean, he was in a rock and roll setting, so he learned a lot from the rockers. So and this is like early 70s, right? This was late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Late 60s, early 70s. So how many bids did he make for getting his own record deal before things lined up for him to get signed by Motown? Well, Rick had a number of albums with a number of, of companies. Um, each one of them that I mentioned, The Great White Cane and uh, Salt and Pepper, um, even he and, and Neil signed with Motown. So he had a number of, he was getting the deals, but the question was whether he was happy with the deals and whether or satisfied and whether he'd stay, you know, I mean, because Rick had other agendas right then. So he, he was still an energetic young guy who um, uh, wasn't as responsible as he should have been. And I think um, uh, Rick didn't even make it until he was like 31, 32. Uh, and that's when he hit at Motown. Actually, let me see. He was he was thirty. He hit when he was thirty. He was uh, um, like nineteen seventy eight was his first hit with um, uh, I guess it was you and I and uh, and that. Uh, but uh, Rick was thirty years old. So he had calmed down a little bit, you know, he was a little bit, uh, uh, he wasn't um, uh, as loose as he was, I should say, because, you know, when he had those other deals, um, he'd walk out for, for any reason, you know, he'd just walk out on the deal and uh, go on to the next thing. So um, uh, he settled down with Motown, and, and because really, he's, uh, before he went to Motown, he's, he started his own label and had um, produced a record on him or Come Get It. Um, not Come Get It, I'm sorry. Um, what was the name of that song? Oh, yeah, um, I know when you're talking. I had heard that. Get Up, get up, and, get up and Dance. Yeah, that's a, and dance. that's a good track, too. Yeah, yeah he, he, he did Get Up and Dance, and um, he marketed himself. So he learned a lot about uh, marketing, promotion, and that um, from having his own record label. Uh, so he did that, and after he did that, that's when he went to Motown. That's when he started uh, putting together uh, an album to take the Motown. Yeah, when he put out that track, I mean, he already had formulated pretty much what that Rick James Stone City Band sound was going to be, I think, on that. Mm -hmm. Actually, he started before that. He had the, that sound before that. I think it, uh, the test marketing came with uh, with uh, Get Up and Dance. Um, how could he work this? Uh, how does the whole system really work? Um, so he did that. He did a, a few concerts, not of his own, but concerts with um, uh, the Ohio players and, and other groups, see how the box office thing worked. 
so really by the time Rick got to Motown, he understood the business pretty well. Uh, he understood uh, what he could do with contracts and the rest. Uh, but nevertheless, he still signed a bad contract with Motown. Um, but I mean, you know, I do entertainment law, so I, you know, most of my clients, I say, look, you, if you get any contract, you're doing better than you did before, you know. And if you hit, then we can renegotiate. So um, a bad contract, a good, any contract is a good contract. Well, I know um, you didn't you didn't um, manage him until a few years later, but did he uh, confer with you on anything like that? at that time not not early on not early on he had a motown lawyer, uh, lawyer um that he used um and um as i said you know even you know he, he would have done the same thing i did you you have no real value when you first come on as a um, as an artist uh the company no matter how good they think you are they're taking a risk so you're not going to get the the best of contracts but once you hit then you renegotiate times times change but sometimes the record company doesn't and uh, when I came along that's when we renegotiated the contract it sounds like he spent his you know late teens and 20s sort of like sowing his oats and experimenting musically and then when he finally got his deal with Motown he had really figured it all out right well, well what he took to Motown was really uh, a great album uh, in, from start to finish. I think he understood when he got there that um, he needed something and this was an expression of, of himself and um, it was different because it had the elements of rock, um, some elements of the African Culture Center if you listen. I mean I can hear things from a lot of the different albums because I you know I heard all of them you know um, and you can take a song like Melinda and listen to that and think in terms of putting Rick's voice in there and it's all Rick James no question in my view so uh, he took that kind of knowledge and that's what he took and, 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 and made it into something that was his his style and uh, um, something that reflected him as the outrageous person that he was mm -hmm. you know did, did, did him getting that Motown deal, did it go back, harken back at all to when he uh, had that song uh, sold to them, or was it completely independent of that? Well, Rick was always wanted to be part of Motown. Because Motown, um, you have to think in terms of the era, uh, Motown was the, it was the Harvard of the music business. Stevie, Smokey, Marvin... Um, uh, the Temptations, the Supremes, the Marvelettes, anybody. Um, I mean, Rick wanted to be a part of that legacy. And uh, um, he had already been a part of it once before as a writer. Um, but now he wanted to be part of it as, as, a, um, as an artist. Uh, yes, he wanted to go there. Uh, I don't know if any other company could have really done what uh, Motown did for him. Uh, because it was the perfect place for him. Although Motown's style was a little different, they were ready for somebody like Rick to take them into uh, into the 1980s, yeah. away from disco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so how did Rick react, and how did you react, and friends and family, when you and I hit it like you did? 
Well, I was always waiting around for the song. You know, I was living in D.C. at the time, and you know, and I was doing my own thing in in the music business with uh, with people in the music business in D.C. Um, so I would always tell them that oh, I had a brother who was going to be a star in that, and they would same thing. Oh yeah, you know, okay, yeah, cool. Uh, let's let's see. And then when it hit, you know, when I really knew that it was Rick, because you know, on the radio sometimes you don't catch the name, but I could, I, I I heard you and I, and that I was like, yeah, finally he's calling. Man, I got a song. The song is is, is hitting. Came down to D.C. and I took him around to the the radio stations and. Um, uh, introduced them to a few people, Chuck Brown and um, uh, Gil Scott Heron's people. Um, you know, this is uh, my brother, the one I've been telling you about. <laughs> I was like, okay, and he was dressed with uh, fringe, leather fringe clothes and some wild hat and braids. And um, this is before he really, he really turned um, uh and, and started really with the series braids and all the other stuff. I mean, this was in between the time of, of him going out on the road and the record hitting. Uh, so he would come to D.C. and we would hang out and I would take him around to my my friends and then they thought, uh, you know, here I am at Georgetown and, you know, Rick, uh, who, who's this wild dude, your, your wild brother? You know, it's like uh, they couldn't understand how the, the two of us were so different. But I mean, that's the way it was. Yin and Yang kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, remember yeah. When, when I first heard that track, um, I mean, right away it clicked, you know. And I was uh, DJing at the time, and it became a quick favorite because you know the long version was on the album, you know, like eight or nine minutes on the album itself, which was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, and then Mary Jane, of course, followed and was another big hit off that record. He was off and right. running. Right, right. Well, usually you don't have somebody who hits that big on their first album, followed by another big album, followed by, I think, two two big albums in a row. Um, how, but, how, how, much, how much control did he have? And it, did he have full creative control over, you know, the, the uh, cuts that would be on the record? over his uh, image? Well, he had control over his image. Uh, Motown, uh, in the first albums or so, had, um, well, Rick gave them what he had, and they loved that. So they didn't have any creative control, other than the fact that Contract did have creative control in it with Motown um, because of the verbiage that was in there, which um, ultimately I changed to um, instead of being commercially satisfactory, which gave them the rights to decide, to technically satisfactory, you know, um, you have you, know, you can't um, uh, you can't question an artist who's successful. You have no one there who can really question a, a successful artist who who really whose music is really different than any other artist you have there. You don't have anybody who can analyze this and say this is a hit or this isn't a hit. You know, this is not Smokey, and this is not Stevie, and this is not Michael. This is Rick, and his music is totally different. So you cannot question uh, and tell me what's going to hit or what's not going to hit. You know, you got you have Rick, 
and Rick is the one who makes that decision. And that that started in in um, about eighty two. It, it seemed like uh, Rick was sort of Motown's answer to like Parliament Funkadelic and that, you know, what Warner's and and uh, Casablanca and whatever was getting with that. Motown was able to sort of get this very flamboyant, hard funk. Believe me, act. Motown wasn't thinking nothing about uh, 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 George Clinton. George Clinton was George. You know, George had the funk down. And he had he had his whole sound and his whole people, his whole followers. Um, Motown had a sound that Rick was, and it was funk, but it was something that was Rick was different. I mean, Rick's sound is different than than, than the Parliament Funkadelics, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and the followers, some of them are just cold-blooded uh, uh, P-Funkers, you know. And the others are Rick. You know, it's very seldom do I don't think those two come together much. Uh, and I don't think Motown was thinking about that at all. They're thinking about this music is hitting. Uh, we know how to take it to the next level. Let's take it to the next level. Now, it was Rick who came in there, and Rick would say, look, you know, uh, I want you to put more effort into my music in other markets, in the markets, and maybe that market, like DC or something like that, is that a market that that uh, the P Funk had, or um, or the Gap Band, or one of those groups. You know, at the, and during those years, the early years, we weren't worried about Prince. Yeah. You know, and and Mike Michael had gone sour, and then only to resurrect himself and and. Um, you know, eighty three, eighty four, something like that. Um, but in those interim years, um, uh, before he left Motown, he wasn't really doing a whole lot until he got to CBS. I mean, he, he did stuff early, and then then there was a little gap there, and then that's when Rick came in. Um, so things happened really quickly for Rick after that. I mean, it was like a, a record a year or so. In one case, I think two came out in one calendar year, but Fired Up came out, uh, that album, and um, um, Busting Out of L7, which is one of my favorite songs that he did, I think maybe could be his funkiest song of them all. Um, mm -hmm. Really hard-hitting album. And then he kind of mellowed out with Garden of Love for a record. And but also during that time he was branching out already to like Tina Marie and things like that. Do, was it always his vision to sort of build his own little empire of acts? I think it was. Uh, after he started rolling, he's, he he um, he wanted to have a number of acts under um, under our production company. Uh, Tina was something different. I think um, uh, uh, when Rick met Tina, Tina was somebody with a lot of talent who uh, Motown wasn't able to do a whole lot with. Uh, they, they didn't have the right producers, and uh, uh, and Tina wasn't the easiest to get along with either. But Tina, Tina knew what she had. Tina knew that she could sing and she could do. She, you know, she wanted some control over over her musical direction also. And once she got with Rick, then um, I think she found more of herself, and then she got the freedom that she wanted. You know, and then uh, you know, then uh, uh, I always said that Tina was uh, the only white person who couldn't cross back over to being white, <laughs> and, and and very few black people thought that Tina was white. 
you know, and she was totally accepted in the black community and, and unheard of in the white, you know. Uh, but just a, a tremendous person, tremendous singer. One of my all-time favorites, like her and Shaka Khan, are two of my favorites. But yeah. I mean, he did he did great work with her on that first record with "Sucker for Your Love" and date. Um, I think uh, there was a, a duet ballad on there too. I think, um, but great, great results. I mean, he really, yeah. you know, helped get her launched. Yeah, well, she deserved it. I mean, uh, uh, however, I mean. She was sitting up, I remember she lived with um, Barry Gordy's brother, Fuller Gordy, and uh, she was a secretary up at uh, Motown, and I believe Rick heard her sing and uh, asked, what, what are you guys doing with her? And uh, uh, they hadn't really gotten it together. Uh, that She had a few bands, she was in a few bands, I think with one of um, Barry's sons, and uh, even Benny Medina was in that band, I think. Um, so uh, when he finally worked with her, then, as I said, she took off. Hit me, yeah! Y'all better take some insurance out on your booty tonight. Because we are not responsible. Ain't it fucking that? Yeah.